Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Joining us on today's performance, people, is one of the UK's most influential thinkers. John Amici is a former NBA star, psychologist, author, and self-described Jedi Knight. Alongside John is his old school friend, Peter Carroll, a business strategist and the CEO of their company. These performance people believe extraordinary things can be accomplished by everyday people. If I win a fight, I lose. If I lose a fight, I lose. If I participate in any kind of physical altercation, I lose. Top optimal effort and execution and output is a part of who we are. Treat the voice in your head like a heckler. Uh, most people have a performance dumbing voice in their head. I tell people to treat that voice like a heckler. John, Peter, thank you so much for uh, speaking to the pair of us. Ben's based in uh, Barcelona at the moment and I'm at our home in Wimbledon. So that's where we're speaking to you from this morning. Um, I didn't get much sleep last night and I was um, looking at some previous uh, interviews that you'd done, John, where you've spoken about the fact that you can get to sleep within three breaths. Is this, is this, uh, a, is this yes. a thing? Is this real? <laughs> and how? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, is a, it is a real thing. It takes a non-inconsiderable amount of time to make it happen, but it's just a question of practice. It's just a question of practice. All you have to do is every night you, you do your 10 breaths, and often it's sequences of 10 breaths that you have to start with, and your only job is to just focus on the rise and fall of your breath. That's it. Um, and, and if you practice that long enough, your first 10 sequence, nothing. The next 10, nothing. By the time you're into your third or fourth, suddenly you will feel calm and you will fall asleep. And the more you do it, the more quickly you get those breaths to hit you in the right place. So it's brilliant. And you can use it, by the way, not just when you're sleeping. You can use it just when you want to relax because the breaths don't make you sleep. They just stop all the, the activity that makes it so difficult. So where did you start from? Did it start from sort of how many breaths does it sort of begin from? And then you end up with sort of three. I mean, where, where's the starting point? 
Yeah, nothing is nothing is ever as simple as the final product. That's for sure. So, I will admit that when I started, it was it was more like five or six sets of ten breaths, right. and sometimes it was five. When I first started, it was five or six sets of ten breaths. Frustration, getting up, having a drink of water, and then sitting, lying back down, and, and trying again. So it takes a while, but it is worth it. To be able to sit on a plane, fall asleep, sit in a car. Fall, I mean, I'm famous for it. I get in the car, three breaths, I'm out. And then an hour later, I'll wake up or be woken up. Yeah. See, I was telling this, I was explaining this um, to Ben um, on the phone yesterday when we were talking about prepping prepping for your interview today. And um, he said, well, of course, that's totally something that I share with John, which he does. He can literally fall asleep absolutely anywhere and often in a really quite embarrassing situation like a dinner or a meeting or whatever it may be. So you two have that in common at least. Well, I was going to ask Peter as well. Peter, have you got this trick? The most I get from it is, is like, it does relax me, but it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't work. I have real problems with sleep hygiene, so... Um, it's a useful tool, but it doesn't work for me. Yeah, you. This this bloke before he tried to shave to look good for you and managed to cut his lip doing it. Oh no, you have you have. That'll, that'll teach me. <laughs> I, I told him one of the primary lessons of doing interviews is you do not shave right before them just in case there's danger. So I come to you unshaven. <laughs> That's pretty sensible by all accounts. Um, let's just talk about you two and how and how you got together. Because as, as best friends, um, I mean, this goes way back to the days of Stockport Grammar. I mean, John, John, first day, I think, even you recount meeting Peter. Just tell us what that was like. I mean, yes. where, you, where you'd come from in your storyline how you ended up at Stockport Grammar and, and then meeting Peter and that effectively defining your friendship forevermore. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, Peter tells this with more clarity simply because <laughs> I was incredibly focused on being a SWAT. I was incredibly focused on simply paying attention to everything any teacher might say uh, because almost everything in my life at that point was just uh, striving to 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 feel smart, to be smart, and to pass through this school with as, as much speed as possible. But we ended up sat next to each other in assembly um, on the first day, and he thought something that I was doing was particularly weird. And that was the, <laughs> what were you that's doing? the beauty of our friendship based <laughs> on that. <laughs> so, I mean, John was always was always a giant, so sat cross-legged on the floor in, in sort of the lower hall in our first year at senior school <clears throat> with the deputy head, on the stage in his gown, owning the stage, walking up and down and lecturing us on something to do with something. And <clears throat> I saw John was sat there and he was really comfortable cross-legged and I've never found, I'm not very flexible, so I've never found that terribly comfortable. And he was sat there and he had a book in front of him with a big pen and this big cursive writing and he was writing things down. So whenever the deputy had said something, he paused and then he'd write something down. And so when we filed out, I just turned around to him and said, what, what, what were you doing? He said, well, oh, I was writing stuff down. I said, but it was utter nonsense. What, what was the purpose of writing something down? And he said, well, just in case there was one thing useful in there, I take a note. And I thought that was weird. And that was how it started. Mm -hmm. And how did your sort of friendship develop from there? Because I mean, I, I actually do have a, a bunch of people that I, you know, I'm still very good friends with who are my school friends. But I was thinking back to sort of how young you were at the time. I mean, there, there aren't that many people that still have friends from that part of their lives. I mean, how did this sort of friendship of yours evolve to the point where you're now working together? 
Well, he was always the cool one in school. Um, so I had no cool credibility whatsoever, and he had lots of it. And so uh, I was that was very kind of endearing to me, this idea that this person had this group of friends that naturally gravitated. So it was quite fortunate for me because I, I'm really clumsy around making new friends. I suppose even, well, not even suppose, I am even now. And he was... He appeared to me at the time to be very easy and simple and good at it. Um, and then I met his his family and his father, who was and as as a someone who didn't have a father in the house, he was like this this amazing character, larger than life, also connected, it seemed to me, to everybody in the universe. And I just thought this was amazing. Plus, uh, in fairness, he let us drink beer, so that was also an advantage. But but not not first year at school. <laughs> no. To be just to be clear. In fairness, that developed. Clear on that. We were much older at that stage. Much older. Se- second year. John, <laughs> because <laughs> hey, I find this fascinating because you talk about being an introvert, but then that is, is so opposite to how your persona comes across. So did Peter help draw that out in you? Um, I, I remain an introvert. Um I still find human beings broadly incredibly energy expensive, <laughs> but but worth it. And that's that's the that's the thing that's changed. So I've certainly learned some really good networking things. Because I, I don't know that I don't know that you enjoy like networky type stuff any more than I do. It is simply that he looks like it's easy for him. And so I did learn how to make it look like it's easy for me. And that's that's a big skill, I think. And what about sport for both of you? Are you, you know, John? Obviously, we get to the we'll get to the basketball piece of your story, but sport just for sport's sake within school was that a big factor for both of you at that point in your lives? It was for me. <clears throat> I played sport every day, sometimes twice a day. Played outside of school as well, and uh, played rugby with John, which was usually an unfair, uh, <laughs> unfair match. But uh, yeah, sport was a massive part of my life uh, at secondary school. Then I got some injuries and that kind of put aid to anything competitive, but I've enjoyed it since. But uh, I didn't take quite the trajectory that you did. Yeah, I don't care about sport. Uh, and I didn't care about sport then. And I don't care about it now. Um, I, I was forced to play rugby, quite literally. Uh, my school, uh, Stockport Grammar, had this weird, I think it was just a posh distinction that it didn't play football. So it played rugby for boys. It played rugby and lacrosse. Lacrosse is weirdly big in in the northwest. I don't really understand it. So I thought if I played lacrosse, I would be so bad at it that it would be one year, two year, and then no more school lacrosse. And I was correct. I was truly awful at it. <laughs> um, and then that after that two years, I was the headmaster and the I forget his name. I didn't like him. The second one or the, the first the, one? The first one. The, the, no, the, the the headmaster, I remember, but there's the, the rugby teacher. Uh, I forget his there name. There was a few. There was a few. But And Mr. Stewart, who was a physics teacher, but also a big rugby guy, they actually called my mother into the school to have a conversation about why this tall, big person wasn't playing rugby. And my mother said, because I like to read. and um, And that was it. I was eventually forced into playing rugby and... Uh, the good part was that I got to play with this guy and there were some good guys on the team. We had, we had a really interesting um, rugby tour up to Newcastle and, and that was eventful. 
Yeah. Did you sort of end up resenting sport because everyone put you in this box as having sort of this big physical presence, therefore you should and needed to be part of that ethos and part of that team structure? Yeah, I broadly hate it when people... Anytime somebody says to you, you a person should do X, Y, or Z, Mm. what they really mean is all this person is good for is that thing. And so when people say, oh, you should play basketball, oh, you should play rugby, what you really mean is with this body and minus any um, sensibility about what's in my head, all you're good for is that. And and I resent that idea. Uh, To this day, I resent it because people still tell me I should play basketball, which is so both frustrating and stupid because I'm clearly far too old to be doing anything like that. Um, But yeah, to me, it's to me, it was just this thing that I was being forced to do against my will when I would rather have been in the library. Well, I was fascinated doing re- research into your story as well, John. And and you talked about, I think, someone approached you and they said, oh, well, this, this could be good for you or should be good for you, rather than actually, this is this is amazing. And and that psychology, so I guess what you're saying is that psychology uh, of sport is what's driven you, not necessarily the action of, of doing it so much. This this man told me that I could be great at something, and it was the first time a stranger, somebody who wasn't my family, had told me I could be great at anything. And that's that was super compelling, almost intoxicating, this idea, wow, I, I could be great at this thing that clearly some people thought was important. And so I was all over that. I was like, yeah, I could try that. But the, the idea of basketball, I'll be honest, he could have said it of Zumba. Mm. He, he could have said it of rowing. He could have said whatever he would have said it of. The idea I could be great at it was the piece that was compelling. Um, I didn't quite realize how much work it would take, <laughs> in fairness, because mm. I was, you know, 17. And, and even sport in the UK at that stage, you, you played rugby, but you didn't do weight training outside of it as a team. You didn't do running and stuff like that. You just played rugby. And I got to America, even in high school, and you had track and sprint training, you had weightlifting, you had stretching and mobility, you had plyometrics, you had all of this other stuff that I didn't realize was part of the the game. And uh, yeah, it was quite a rude awakening. But John, you say that you, you say you don't care about sport, but do you, is there, the what it's given you, there must be, there must be some appreciation for the doors that it has opened and what it's enabled you to do and what it, what it's provided for you. Well, it's not, I suppose I never frame it as, and Ben, you might have a different thought on this, but so many people who, who watch sport imagine that it is a gift giver, that there's this thing, and if you are lucky enough to grab on the back of this creature as it rises Icarus-like, that you will suddenly, you know, you'll be lauded with gold and whatever else. But it, it isn't that. It, it is it is an empty vessel. Sport is an empty vessel. It doesn't intrinsically teach any lessons. We all know people who behave abhorrently. If sport taught all the best lessons, then all of our sports people would be our best people. And they are not <laughs> our best people, all of them. Some of them are remarkable the Marcus Rashfords of this world, who I know not a thing about his football ability, but the fact that he helps children to eat in during the summer holidays, that to me is a sign of his goodness. So I have used sport and sport has used me and that has been the relationship. But the work, there's, there's, there's no part of it that feels like there's a gift given. 
because everything was so hard. Now, in fairness, I'm not like Ben in that I was a very average NBA player. It still makes me better than anybody watching this, unless they're an NBA player. But, but, but I was average. And so just to maintain my place was such an effort at every moment. I, I ate the same thing for lunch for a decade. Broiled chicken, brown rice, some form of green, in order to maintain a body percentage that's absurd. And so it never felt like a gift. It felt like a grueling thing. And then the season would end and you'd have that one week where I could eat cheesecake and I could drink wine and I could not run every day. And then that week would be over and it would be preseason again and a hundred games were looking at you. And so not a gift. And, and as for what I can do with it, that's the bit that's good, right? The idea that as a scientist now with the work that we do, we can speckle boring for us, it's not boring because we're nerds, but for what other people, it's boring, dry, researchy stuff that will help organizations and people change. We can speckle it with these anecdotes that have real life to them because they're so unusual and unique. Peter, did you see it sort of a marked change in John when that stranger approached him? Because you would have been present in, in his life throughout this time. Uh, a marked change in him when this stranger did approach him and sort of said, you could be great at this and gave him the confidence to pursue this particular path. Did you see a change happen? Yeah, there were lots of changes. So um, confidence gradually grew in himself. Doing more and more things out of school, playing at the local club, training with the local basketball team, uh, stopping playing rugby, which was a big, big event, which required, again, <laughs> mum to come into school and to explain in uncertain, no uncertain terms why that she was did. going to be the case, she did. which was not, but the rest of us didn't, weren't allowed to do that. Um, but his mum was a tour de force and, uh, mm. and, and made that work. And, and then just increasingly his, you know, his physique changed. I mean, if I compare John at 16 to 23, it's, it's, the difference is remarkable. And I almost don't recognise him at 23, 24 when he was finishing up at university um, because his physique had changed so much. So, yeah, lots and lots of changes. In, in what, the, in the what way? I, just with stature and bulk and uh, how? Well, I mean, he was already fully, f f his, his height was already reached, but, uh, you know, the body the body fat just fell off him. I mean, he became an incredibly lean athlete, uh, such that the shape of his face was, was unrecognisable to me. Um, and he also changed his hair and, and it was, so when he went to the US in 1989, yeah. um, you know, when we had been kind of inseparable for those kind of couple of years leading up to it, it was like a loss for me that my best mate had gone, I'd gone off to uni, but he'd gone off to a different country and it was a 49, 50 week a year, year for you. Whereas for us in UK uni, it was 30 something weeks a year and then the rest of it was holidays. Uh, and so I never really saw him. And so over a couple of years, there was this massive transition that happened after mm. he left the UK. But in the UK, there was definitely a change as well. And so, jo I didn't jo realise the confidence bit. Yeah, that, that's interesting, isn't it? So that's that's your best mate's interpretation of of sort of you know what mm. what you became as a result of probably one conversation that triggered everything else. And so, do you remember um, stepping into that basketball environment for the first time and how that made you feel, having been previously feeling like you sort of you know didn't may maybe fit in 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 various other ways? Oh yes, yes. In the UK. I remember it distinctly because the, the the people in that room are still friends of mine today. And up until I haven't touched a basketball in a long time, it's probably 15 years, but up until about 10, 15 years, up until about 10, 15 years ago, 
uh, every once in a while we'd still play together uh, as a group. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't really recognizable as basketball, but we we did it anyway. And this group of people, they they were amazing in that I walked into that room in plimsolls, remember <laughs> plimsolls, plimsolls, and a rugby kit because I didn't have I didn't know what basketball kit was. So I walked in in rugby kit and plimsolls into a gym with the tile floor, those old cinder tile floors. And when I walked in, everything in that room stopped. And these kids ran towards me. They grabbed me by the arms and were like, this guy's on my team. (laughs) And bearing in mind, I'd never played before, didn't know what this game was or what the point of it was. It was was this moment of, oh my God, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to offer anything other than just be me. And these people wanted me. And that's a very different experience than I have even now when I walk around the streets. Because when when people see me on the streets now, that is not the reaction, certainly for strangers, that I get. I get the reaction. I walk around the corner of my house here. I live in Covent Garden. And I walk around the corner here. Um, This must have been about six months ago, but it just sticks in my craw. I walk around the corner and, and I wasn't right into another couple. It was four or five meters away from another couple who, when they saw me, they both of them went, oh, and dropped their coffees. And it's like, that is a remarkable reaction to have to a large black man. And it's like, really? And actually, you know, we're 50 meters from my front door. I live here. You're just coming to work here. And so to have that reaction in that room all those years ago, having not felt like I fitted in, I was like, this is amazing. I don't have to be good and these people like me. So it was awesome, yeah. That's an insane, like you say, that's an insane thing to happen to somebody, isn't it? That's and and is that is that you're saying it's not a one-off? I mean, that does that does happen with some degree of regularity. It is a common occurrence. It's been a common occurrence all my life. And even now, as there are a group of people who know me quite well, whether it be from social media stuff or from working with with our with our company and, and working together. Even then, I can leave an event, especially in the wintertime when it's dark, I can leave an event with a client where they've been clamoring around me, they want me to sign my book or whatever else. I can see the same people and watch as we approach each other on a dark street. And at about 100 meters away, they'll cross the street away from me. And then at about 50 meters or 25 meters, they'll be like, oh, it's John. And they'll cross back over to, to talk to me. And that's so that that's the experience all the time. This weird contradiction of some part of me being terrifying, and only you know people only recognizing the brain bit of me um, when it suits them. What does that do to a person? What does that do to you to experience something like that? Because you know you could have a really great day and have a you know a brilliant day at work, and everything's gone swimmingly, and you feel like you've really connected with a group of people, and then you walk home and something happens like that and it could just set you back ages. I mean, how, how does it, how does that make you feel? Uh, I mean, broadly now, the, the, the good news is that everything for me is anecdote fodder. So <laughs> yeah. every experience that I have that's negative, I'm thinking, how can I use this mm. to help educate, support the coaching clients that we work with, the, the, the big organizations and the boards that we're working with? How can I use this? To help them. So I, I try and turn the kind of bollocks that occurs into useful material. And that helps to make it from something that's frustrating to something you can always be excited about. Is it bizarrely motivational? 
It, it really is. That, that's the odd part. It's motivational. And what's really lovely about it for me is the idea that so many people, they get to hear this story, that it becomes a protective measure. It's It helps people to realize, oh, I might have been the kind of person who would cross the street. I might have been the kind of person who would judge or make an assumption. And maybe I shouldn't do that. So I'm actually using it as an example, but also it's helpful in our work in that we can stop people from participating in that behavior themselves. I suppose yeah. the other thing is vulnerability, isn't it? It's like picking on on the vulnerab- vulnerabilities of people. I mean, I suppose I, from my position as a, you know, as a, as a female who's only five foot tall, <laughs> I mean, certainly I used to feel it when I worked night shifts um, and had to walk back from somewhere and you walk back through an area and you're a bit uncertain and a bit not sure about what you're going to come across. Um, and you do the, this feeling of vulnerability. And I guess I would, I would never look at you and think that you would ever possibly feel vulnerable, physically ever vulnerable. Um, lots of people feel mentally vulnerable, but physically vulnerable. And so that's a huge surprise to me that you would say that. But I suppose it, it works in lots of different ways with lots of different people. It's one of the things about being huge, though. You, you, you don't get to use it. There's no, there's no possible benefit. If I win a fight, I lose. If I lose a fight, I lose. Mm. If I participate in any kind of physical altercation, I lose. Mm. Because when I fight, people get to say things like, is that really congruent with a professor in a university? When I fight, they get to say, you know, this is an educated person who should know better than to behave that way. So I just turn myself, if I fight, into the person that people think I am. I become the thug the criminal, the dangerous person that people think. So I I eternally recognize that if there's ever an altercation, unless my life is threatened in a way that is so obvious, and unless I think there are cameras around, I'm probably best off not fighting. So it's it's a weirdly vulnerable position to be in, actually. Peter, from your perspective, that must be immeasurably impressive to see John in a situation like that and actually react in the totally the right way. I mean, that's absolutely the right reaction, isn't it, to a situation like that? Yeah, and it it often happens with verbal dialogue. It's not always a physical confrontation. It's often a a verbal challenge. Uh, We can experience it in the public or we can experience it with clients, people raising very clever objections Mm -hmm. and uh, being able to manage the objection with de-escalation when inside there's turmoil. So inside you've got this, you know, you've got to manage the inner milieu when actually what you want to do is respond. Mm. And instead, because of the role that John plays, he's not able to do that on the platform he has. And what it what it serves is put those people in the room that are not raising the objection in the way that they are, they get to see someone really, a master of their craft practicing it in front of them, which is how in a really difficult situation you have to step back and de-escalate and manage a successful outcome, no matter how you feel. Yeah. How, how have you, can I ask how you've developed those skills? Is that something that you've had to work at, you practice at, or it's natural or, or all, all three? So, so we, we have a phrase that we use all the time um, where we talk about, do you want to, do you want to win in the long term or do you want to be right right now? Mm. And I want to win in the long term. And so once I realized this, because almost everything I've done, we've done. I mean, Peter's been a surgeon. He's he's done a ton of stuff that I can't imagine and now leads this organization. He's my boss. Um, So both of us understand what it is to want to win in the long term. 
And it really helps when those moments, I've got the snappy comeback, I've got the right hook or whatever it is, and I could, in this moment, I could win. But all I think about is, is this a step towards what I want in the future? Or is it a step away from what I want in the future? And invariably, I can't say there's never been a time when I've just said, no, I'm sorry, unacceptable. And But even then, I normally say that and then just depart. I'm out. Because that's the best I can do in that moment. But normally, it's like, how do I turn this into something that will allow us, me, us, to win in the future? And that's... I don't think it's a tool even, Ben. It's just a, it's the, it's the urgency of wanting that picture of the future so much that I wouldn't jeopardize it for this tiny little victory in this moment. But it, each interaction that you have, do you take, you take something away from that, some kind of learning that helps you the next go around? And you, so it's an evolution, really, of developing those skills. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think, I don't know whether it's a, a sports-like skill or not, but the, the idea that as you as you do something, as you, as you become good at something, sometimes that tactic becomes less effective because people get more sophisticated. And so you iterate your, your, your thing that used to be your winning move. And eventually you look back a few years later and your winning move doesn't look anything like it used to look, but it's now more effective against more uh, defenses, if you like. And that's... Uh, that, I'm definitely not a finished article there, but I'm I'm in the process of I don't know if I'd recognize my winning moves against stupid and against malice from five years yeah. ago, but I know that I would handle it better now than I ever did. That's fascinating. Is that you employing this everyday Jedi thing? Because I just love that expression and I, I love what it refers to and what it harks back to, especially when you tell that story of going to the cinema to watch Star Wars with your mum and looking over at her yep. and recognising in this moment that she was, in fact, a Jedi, <laughs> that she had those qualities of how, of how she behaved with other people and how they responded to her, and you could recognise that in her. I think that, and, and Peter, obviously, yeah. you, you spoke about John's mum as well. She obviously has this hugely profound impact in, in who you are as a person and how you want to carry yourself through life. I mean, it is important, isn't it, for all of us to find mentors in some way. But when they come in the form of your mum, I guess that's that's an extra special scenario. It's it's a big it's a big advantage. I think um, m- most of the time when I talk about my mum, people think the stories are apocryphal. They're kind of um, uh, you know a slightly made up version of things, but it's not a slightly made up version of things. I knew she was a Jedi. I now talk about the fact that I thought she was a Jedi. But when I was a kid, I knew she was a Jedi. And because I literally witnessed how she interacted with human beings in distress, I would go to the surgery. And obviously, it's a very different time now. I'm not sure they'd let kids hang out in the surgery, um, in, in the doctor's surgery. But I went to the surgery. I, I stood and watched as patients would come in, be distressed in such a way that the, that the receptionists behind the desk, couldn't manage it. And my mother would trundle out, listen, and then say a few words in a tone that is indescribable. But would, you could, I'm sure if you could, if they had heart rate monitors on them, you would be able to tell that they, everything about them was calming down. And there's just a sense in the room that this is handled. And I watched that happen. And so to me, it was completely logical that there must be an exploration, uh, explanation from this that was quite 
magical because I knew it wasn't anything to do with being trained as a doctor. Um, but yeah, she was just, she was remarkable. My mother always used to talk about feathers and bricks. She said, when, when, you, when, you, when you hear people comment about the thing that you're trying to achieve, the real skill is, is not in listening to everything, but determining which of these are feathers and which are bricks. Because some things people say, if I, if I came to you and said, I'm about to get into sailing, I'm not a seafaring person. It's not going to happen. <laughs> but words that you said to me would be bricks. I would build a foundation with these. They would help me on my way. They would elevate me quite literally as that, as that foundation rose. And other things that people say, some random person on a sideline, some random person in my, my social media DMs, these are feathers. They are to be blown away as if nothing. That's it. Even when they do land on you, they do no harm. You just wipe them away. And the real performance skill to me is knowing which are feathers and, and which are bricks. And she talked, she seemed to talk a lot about this um, vigilance, which we've just actually mentioned about every taking everything from every interaction in order to get the best out of it. Um, and I'm guessing you've yeah. taken that as well into what you're both doing now and making sure and, and imparting that information as well to others that just take every single, squeeze every single thing out of those interactions with other people to just get the best possible richness out of that situation for yourself and others. Yeah, it's it's a tenant of what we do, and and not just of what I do, uh, but what Peter does. Because one of the things with the work that we do is that most people don't know what they need. They know that they've got a problem, uh, and often they actually they don't always know what the problem is. They know what the symptom is. Mm. Um, it's attrition in their workforce. It's um, toxic behaviors in this person. It's it's a drop in sales over here, or whatever it might be. And and the thing is, people think I'm the kind of magic person because I am part of the team that does the solution hearing, if you like, with a solution factory bit. But Peter is the one who who kind of takes this nebulous kind of from people and has to listen to every iota of it. That's that's the piece that's remarkable. And 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 most people don't realize because they they think listening to me talk is compelling, but I can only do what I do because he's found out. What, what the actual problem is for me to solve. It's a pretty cool co partnership in that way. It works really well. It's I mean, just I get all the credit. <laughs> but when I, when, I was, when I was researching into the pair of you, I, I said to Ben, actually, I was like, you need these guys in your, in your organization. Because one interesting thing that you, you'd mentioned before as well was that people don't tend to come to you first. They tend to, they tend to come to you because they haven't solved. Mm. They still continually haven't solved the problem. So, Peter, where, why is that? And how can, how can you shortcut people? to, Or do they have to go through that process in order to come to you? Because it's sort of a help. We really need you now. I think there's a, there's a couple of factors. One is it's, it's, it's really difficult when you're at the coalface with a problem to actually stand back and work out what the root cause is. And, it's, and so the conversations that I have with clients, is it's more of a thought partnership coaching conversation to tease out what it is. And it, mm. it harks back to my healthcare days where you are, you, someone comes in with a symptom, but actually needs to work out what's going on because treating the symptom may not solve the problem. So it's very much about creating a, a view of the diagnostic and it's very easy to do as a, as a third party, I think. And a lot of organizations will just jump at the symptom and be happy to treat the symptom. Um, and of course, no one ever gets fired for hiring one of the big organizations. And we are a small boutique 
consultancy and, and it carries a different risk profile to hire an organisation like us with an outspoken founder. Um, you have a few views, I think. It's all I your fault, John. I, I resemble that remark. Uh, I don't know what he's talking about. What are, what are the... Um, is, as Georgie said, I, mean, I, I find this fascinating because we, we have a number of sports teams in, in sailing with the America's Cup and a, and a, a league called SailGP. But when you delve into some of your clients, I mean, presumably varying um, organisations and, and industries and, and alike, but are there a couple of anecdotes there of some particularly difficult, challenging management groups or cultures there that you've had to take on and try and break down? Uh, any anything there that you can, you, without betraying any confidences, you could you could talk through? It'd be interesting to hear. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's there's schools of problems and one of the themes of problems if you like is denial mm. um the the idea that this is happening and it's nothing to do with us is a very common thing so when people want the solution what they really mean is not what do we have to do as a leadership team but what do they have to do as hr or what do those kids those young people those graduates have to do uh, or what does the government and policy have to do but it's not us. And that's that can be quite impenetrable because it's it's challenging for people to be told, uh, it's you. You're the problem. It's you. And to, to, to not be able to separate out from the fact that it doesn't make you a bad person per se. It means that you're doing things that are causing harm, whether it be to your bottom line or to human beings. And that's one of the jobs that we have. It's quite a, a diplomatic role, actually, we're working with very senior people who are not used to being in any way um, unequipped. They're used to always knowing everything they need to. And now the world is changing so much that their expectations of them have changed. So that's one side of it uh, that I think is is a real challenge. You can also get groups of people who are optical. They know that they have to be seen to do something, but what they actually are doing is digging their heels in as part of the change. So they're actually paying you to support a, a, a systemic change while they themselves are digging their heels in and undermining the process, mm. um, actually acting as saboteurs inside their own organization for the change that they say they want to see. But that that causes more problems for them because in this world, one of the factors that creates more problems than any other in organizations is incongruence. The idea, whether it's, whether it's a group, of, whether it's a crew on a boat, whether it's a team in a boardroom, it doesn't really matter. When there's a difference between what you say you set, you're setting out to achieve and what you've, you're actually doing, it creates this, this challenge. And so there's lots of different themes, I think, in our clients. I don't know if you've got another one that's, that's a good one, but that's the kind of stuff that we see all the time. I think the, you know, sometimes we talk, we focus a bit more on the problems when we talk about clients. And in fact, you think about executive coaching, sometimes you're coming from a, a problem scenario, sometimes you're going into a growth scenario. And even if you start in a problem scenario, you hope to end in a growth scenario. But we we have clients coming to us now who want us to help them win more business. Mm. And so it's not, and, and they don't understand the root cause of why they're not winning. They know why their competitors are beating them, but they don't have their kind of recipe for how they address that. So, um, but part of them, that is they've got systems, they've got structures, they've got teams, they've got cultures, they've got ways of doing things. And it is their celebrated few that, get to work with these big pitch meetings with their clients and it's quite hard to break down some of the some of the rules that already exist in order to address and fix things 
So it, it can be really challenging because you always end up with, you've got a status quo bias. This is the way things are done here. We want to be better, but we don't want to mix it up too much is usually the kind of appetite that clients have. It feels like a lot of a lot of these companies and a lot of these businesses that you're working with need um, uh, retrofitting, need need to sort of go back over what they're doing and reevaluate. What about startups? Ben and I have got a startup, and I always think how important it is to set the right culture from the outset. And so people love what they do, they love where they work, but they're really motivated to to turn this thing that is this little gem of an idea into a really good business proposition. So what about working with startups and 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 how do you approach that? I mean, do you work with many and 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 how do you sort of set the tone for that so that they don't fall into those really easy to fall into traps of, you know, whatever it might be? might be that ends up with a, a workforce that really needs you guys in there sorting them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we work with a number of founders and some startups as well. I think the with startups, what we tend to do is to, to and, and Peter is as much a part of this and I, as I am actually, it, you have to set yourself up ready for the transition that's going to happen. Yeah, Because even when you create a culture that's amazing around the 10 people you work with, once, once you start professionalizing, and we as an organization experience this too, once yeah. you start saying, right, policy, procedure, adherence to things that, you know, we've got these contracts with big companies, we've got to adhere to things about data protection and information security and this really dull stuff that isn't really the purview of a group of people just storming together to make it work. Yeah. So you've got to prepare people for the idea that this is going to happen in the future and there are choices there that we either adapt and change as an individual to to that necessity, or you recognize you're one of those people who wants to join startups, help them get to this point, and then depart to another startup and, and build that same wonderful culture together. But with founders, it's often the idea of helping them to realize what they're really good at and what they're not. You know, this organization did not start to succeed until I stopped being the nominal (laughs) CEO. Because I'm a crap CEO. (laughs) I am not good at it. And he is excellent at it. And there is, I think people often think that it's kind of a nominal thing between us. Oh, we're friends and we're kind of just co... And it's not. He is the one with the smarts for that stuff. And I am not. I have a skill and expertise. And what we know how to do is when to link into each other because yeah. I don't know what to do. He sent me a task this morning to do and I'm going to do that and he's going to slot it in the right place. And I'll have no idea what he's slotting it into because he knows how to do that. Yeah. And that 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 understanding, and I think it's true in, in sports as well, the idea yeah. that here are three skills that I have. I'm trying to think. In basketball, maybe I had three skills that were kind of top quality. Here are the three skills that I have, and I will not jump out of that box because the moment I do, I'm in trouble. You know, in in basketball, I think I took in 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 the league six three point shots in my entire career, and they were all at the last second. They were all just because they had to be heaved up. I think I made one, and a complete luck. And but I am a better three point shooter than most people. It's just that. I'm not as good as the people who I played with. So just step out of that re- arena and let them do it. And that's one of the things with founders and startups that that if you can help founders to realize that point when they need to stop yeah. being the everything and just start being this other thing, they thrive. Yeah, I, I remember a hugely successful uh, mentor, I suppose, when we started the America's Cup team 
the first thing he said to me was one of our backers. He said, the mo- in leadership, the moment you realize, or the earlier you realize that actually putting more talented people uh, <laughs> in leadership roles around you will make your life a hell of a lot easier in the success of the, of the team. And uh, it's exactly what you're saying. It's very true. And there's, there's a joy, isn't there, I think, to watching other people just be awesome. And just being able to sit back and watch. I've done it with colleagues who have been doing uh, client-facing stuff with me. And, and they step in to do something. And you just kind of sit back and you watch. And like, oh, my God, I don't even need to be here. And and that's that, to me, is always incredible. And I don't, I never quite understand, because we love to talk to people about contextual leadership, the idea that in when when you get really good with a team, in specific moments, you'll know when that person who other people may not consider a leader is the one who will be in charge in this moment or in this moment. And watching that happen is like magic. It's awesome. And it's also a sign of real teaming and real success because everybody knows that they're going to have their moment to shine, to step up, to deliver. Um, But it's a frightening thing because lots of leaders, they define themselves by being in charge, which is always slightly a mistake. How important is leading by example? You talk a lot about this um, being a, a, you can't be a part-time person of principle. So how important is leading by example and and setting that tone? And I, I mean, y- y- you probably refer back a lot to your story about could you or would you have joined the LA Lakers and then decided not to um, because in principle, you'd agreed a different position with Orlando Magic and they'd you know, um, and, and shown you that confidence in you, and you wanted to, you wanted to repay that faith. So, so ca- this part-time person of principle thing, like, uh, how can how can we get better at that? How can we be principled in all things? Because we all stuff up, right? We all get things wrong um, at various different mm-hmm. times in our life, and and you know, on a daily basis. So, how can we be better at that? So, being a the, the thing about you can't be a part-time person of principle is not about never making any mistakes. Um, we all make mistakes. But it is about recognizing what are your fundamental principles. And many people never consider this. What are your fundamental prison principles? He and I, because psychological background, medical background, but also I think just because of how we were raised, a duty of care is kind of important. But also... And, and again, could be for multiple reasons, absolutely kicking ass is a part of us too. So so top optimal effort and execution and output is a part of who we are. And when you start to look at those two principles, they do not collide because sustainable performance doesn't have a body count, right? It doesn't allow people to be ground into dust. And so most people haven't considered their principles. And if you haven't considered your principles, how can you be part-time or full-time or any time with them? And so that's what, that's what, I mean, I, again, it's my mum, it's my experiences with his family that built a set of principles that seemed like they made sense to me. One where I could individually thrive, where I could find a place in this world that made sense, where I could win in the long term, and nobody had to be sacrificed or stepped on for that to happen kind of interesting when you look at what's going on in the world with various different, especially within sport and how big a business sport has become. And especially in various parts of the world, you look at, you know, Jordan Henderson's recent signing to the Saudi Saudi League and various other, you know, live golf. Um, certainly the attraction and the 
you know, the material attraction, the money involved, these huge sums, questioning, uh, making people question where their loyalties lie or where their principles really are. I mean, what, what's your sort of thought on that, John? Because as a sports person, do you need to be a role model? Do you, is it important that you, you stand up for something, but you also believe what you're saying as opposed to just going with the flow because that's the trendy thing to do at that particular moment in time? I mean, what's your, what's your sort of thought yeah, on that? I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know that that Henderson was not believing what he stood up for. Um, I, as, as for a role model, you don't have a choice. It's the beauty of it. I, I, I love this about being a role model. I love it because it applies everywhere and not just athletes. It applies everywhere. You have no choice. And you may not ever know. There is, there is a middle manager somewhere in some random organization. There is uh, uh, someone who works in a shop somewhere. And around them, there are people who look to them and say, oh my God, I wish I was as good at this or that. They are role models. I wish I could handle the boss the way you do. There are people out there who are role models in even small ways. And athletes can be role models in very singular dimensions, but important ways. And you don't have a choice. It's one person is all it takes to look at you and imagine that you have something to offer them. And that, and that means they're going to watch you in the future. And you're a role model. That's it. When it comes to this live golf and, and Saudi thing, there's two things, a lot of things that I think are important. I was just talking to a group of people about this the other day. We have to, we have to separate governments from people. Because I think sometimes when we have these conversations about Saudi Arabia, about Qatar, about wherever, people imagine um, uh, that every person in these countries is malicious when it comes to LGBT people or when it comes to immigrants or when it comes to whoever. And, and governments and their people are not the same. I don't know if any of us would want to be defined by our government currently. I don't, I don't know if that's the way that people would want to be characterized. Um, and so... It, that's the first thing. The, the second thing is that what the, where the principle has fallen down here is with the large sporting uh, elements. That the, these 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 large uh, pseudo governmental organizations within sport, who if you read their websites and look at their charters, sport is a human right. No one will be denied the right to play. Mm. No one, not LGBTQ people, not women, not anyone, not immigrants, not undocumented people. No one will be denied. That sets up a principle that should apply across the world. It should mean that if a country attacks another in Europe, that perhaps they shouldn't be allowed to represent themselves. And so the, the, where it's fallen down is not Henderson. Where it's fallen down is with these organizations who have taken money over the principles they themselves espouse. Because it's not my principles as a supposed activist. It's their own principles that you can read on their website. That, that have been abandoned. And, and if the organization that governs you abandons it, so if you're a golfer now, what are you supposed to do? You've made your life making gol uh, uh, playing golf, which I've never played. Uh, I've played putt-putt, but that's it. Um, <laughs> that doesn't count. You've made your life playing golf. Are you right? <laughs> are you supposed to just stop now? Or are you unprincipled if you continue? So it becomes more complex than the individual people because it's the entities and organizations that are abandoning their principles, in my mind. 
Um, because this is a um, performance podcast and we're all about how to achieve optimal performance on a daily basis, I wanted to ask you both for a sort of a hack, effectively, of how you best think people can do that. Peter, should we start with you? Um, what, what, is a, what is a hack that you would have in mind that would be a, a great way for people to get better everyday performance? So speaking from, as a, someone who doesn't sleep well, sleep hygiene is really important. So I know that I just haven't conquered it. I think the balance of diet and hydration, really simple, but really, really important. But the thing is, when you have something that you don't want to do, which is for most of us every day, there's something that comes up. Um, if you can't hack your mindset just by thinking about it differently, I use music. I would just plug into something that's going to allow me to mm change, whether I have to move into a creative space, whether I have to move into a super detailed space, um, rather than ob obscure the mood that you're in and then just drag yourself to it and drag yourself through it and hate it. And then next time something similar comes up, you hate it more. Try and hack your mood. Makes a difference. What's on your playlist for detail? Ooh, so uh, for detail... You have to suddenly go into so that detailed space. what I need space. to do is to get into, yeah, I need to get into quite a calm, because I need to calm all the other thoughts. So I usually go for some Zimmer, some soundtrack from Hans Zimmer. Oh, yes, I, I can attest to that being true. <laughs> yes, yeah. I can see how that would work. That's Yeah, I can totally see that. Yeah. And and John, what about you? Um, Since I've had time to think about it, I, <laughs> um, I would go with... Uh, Treat the voice in your head like a heckler. Uh, most people have a performance dumbing voice in their head that tells them they can't do things, that they can't achieve things, that they're bound to fail at things, that they are not strong enough or they are not pretty enough or they are not clever enough. And I tell people to treat that voice like a heckler. Mm. If some random, especially, you know, some random person as athletes, um, well, at least as professional athletes, former in my case, uh, athletes, we, we, Ben and I will know that there are people who've never played or never sailed or never, who yell at you stuff <laughs> that you're doing wrong. And we don't look at them and say, yes, elderly fat man on the sideline <laughs> who's eat, drinking beer and munching on a chicken wing. I'm definitely going to take your advice because you're clearly a good actor in all of this. We, we don't do that. We, 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 list, we look at that person and say, that person can't do what I've done and has no insight to share with me. And I think we need to do that with the voice in our head because the voice in our head is not you. It is not us as an individual. It is a compilation story of all the doubts, insecurities, and stupid comments, um, thoughtless comments that have been made by people around you over time. It's the fears that are manifest in any performance journey. And it, it's personified into a voice that is just a heckler. And I don't think we should to pay attention to it any more than a person walking down the street should pay attention to that shirtless builder whistling and heckling you from a, from a scaffold. And when you do that, no, when you challenge that voice, it's really interesting. Can you explain to me why I'm no good at this? Even if you just say that in your head, well, oh, why am I no good at this? There won't be an answer because that kind of nebulous doubt doesn't have an answer. It just has heckling. That's what I do. Ben, you can do that. Next time my dad tells you how to uh, start a race, you'll be able to say to him, I'm not listening to you because John told me not to. 
No, it's brilliant. Brilliant. It's gold, gold dust. But no, I, I was fascinated listening to that because you do, as you go through life, you get more and more, um, you know, doubters and, and, and that inevitably you're going to get criticized and you just have to find a way to, uh, you know, accept that's part of life. Uh, some, in some cases, people might actually have a point and it's worth taking on board and considering. And other cases, uh, that's just something that you got to, you got to park. And, uh, people people in our team um that get criticized and they come to me and they say oh i can't believe so and so said that and oh that's really hurtful and and you say to them get you have to tell these people get in line because that's you know the more the the more you strive for uh success and and you're pushing hard you the more criticism you're going to face so it's uh i think it's fascinating listening to both of you talk about how you deal with that and um you know set those standards moving forwards thank you both thank you guys i hope you have a lovely day such a pleasure thank you both thanks ben thanks georgie bye bye Th- thank take you care both. so georgie another wonderful conversation there and uh, peter and john fascinating characters i guess for me the interesting fact was they're great buddies of course but how they've managed to take that into building and leading such a successful organization and what they're individual strengths are and how they bring that together but how about you yeah one of the interesting bits for me was the fact that you know john talks about sport a lot in different contexts but i mean we both love sport and we we sort of appreciate what it's both given us but actually his point is is that it's not sport that gives you that it's the people that are involved in that process that give you that um which which counts for a great deal and i think that can be applied to anything can't it it's about you know where you draw your inspiration from ultimately comes from people um, and how they treat you. And he talks about all of us being role models. And I think that is that is a really interesting take. Uh, thanks for watching and or listening. This has been Performance People. We are Ben and Georgie Ainsley. And remember, from what we've learned today, treat your inner voice as you would a heckler. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.